Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 253, Anglo-Saxon Market Towns in the Viking Age. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Eris, Carolyn, and Deborah for signing up already. Cultures change all the time. Actually, yours is changing right now in ways that you may or may not realize. It's a completely normal yet everyday fact that has been with humanity since we began. Probably before we began. And yet, telling the story of how a culture changed is extremely challenging. Culture shifts are messy. They're chaotic, and they come with a boatload of caveats and exceptions. The entire theme of the BHP, right from the start, has been that people can't be pigeonholed. They're complicated, unique, and they never perfectly fit into a category. And yet, even as we acknowledge that, we must recognize trends and norms and traditions. If for no other reason, then they do actually change over time. At our point in history, with the arrival of the Danes, we're seeing one of these cultural changes. It's actually a massive shift, though it might not have been clear how massive it was to the people who found themselves living through it. And this shift was taking place in the towns and cities of Britain. Now, the story of towns and cities in Britain has been a story of ebbs and flows. During the high water mark in the Roman occupation, specialized towns and cities were popping up all throughout the island. But as the system began to break down, as the stability and economic structure that the urban centers relied upon shattered, the cities started to crumble. Out of necessity, the people withdrew from the towns and focused on small-scale subsistence farming villages. And that makes a great deal of sense. That's the most stable way you can survive such a catastrophic event. But over time, stability returned to Britain. And yes, there still were wars and conflict, and you still had people who felt they deserved their neighbor's stuff, and then backed up that feeling with an axe. But the economic structure of the island was stabilizing, and it eventually reached a point where seasonal trading sites began to pop up. In these trading sites, villagers from all over would congregate at a chosen time and place and bring their goods to market. Eventually, certain people realized that they could make a better profit if they established a permanent foothold in these seasonal markets. And then other settlers followed them. And before long, they became permanent market towns. And typically in Britain, this organic style of development is how market towns popped up. And eventually, of course, the wealth class realized that they could turn all of this to their advantage. And they began to seek a cut. And with that, urbanization was back in style. But this return to urban centers isn't entirely a story of growth in every region. It was a patchwork. And actually, the divestment of lands via book land did lead to some areas actually breaking up a bit, because these once unified estates that we talked about last episode were being fragmented. But overall, you saw towns and cities gaining ground. One such market town was Londonwich, this was a trading center that sat outside the city of London, right about where the Strand sits now in modern-day London. 
Now, London Witch had grown into a bustling center of commerce over the last century or so, and virtually everyone of means was finding a way to get involved in it and try and turn a profit. In fact, the trading activity had increased so much that it allowed for a new class of people to settle in the region. It was a class that drew their income mainly from just trade that was happening in London Witch. And think about the enormity that that shift would have had for certain types of people. I mean, craftsmen who 200 years earlier would have been itinerant traders scratching out a living by moving from place to place, now were able to have a static location where they could ply their trade and greatly increase their income because they wouldn't have to go around looking for a market. Their market was right in front of them. And it wasn't just craftsmen and traders who were becoming reliant on this new economic model. Nobles had begun to draw significant amounts of income through tolls. And with that, other people were coming in to support this growing economy. You had toll collectors, you had hired guards, you had all kinds of people. I mean, you needed public houses, you needed people to handle wagons bringing goods around. You needed all kinds of stuff to keep a market town running. And so suddenly, there were a lot of jobs that were available. And this wasn't unique to London Witch. This was the case for most trading towns, big and small. So everyone was getting in on the game. And things were growing rapidly. That is, until the Danes showed up. The problem was that all of this economic activity made these trading towns almost as attractive to raiding pirates as the undefended monasteries. And that had a catastrophic effect upon their survival. And they must have been getting hit a lot, because even though the scribes of the Chronicle were terrible for leaving things out, even then, with their spotty record, we still see the occasional written record of an attack upon a major market town. And the archaeological record suggests that these attacks on market towns were far more common than the occasional mention that we get in the Chronicle. Shortly after the raids begin, trading towns that had been in operation for generations rapidly downscale, and some of them outright vanish. The smaller towns appear to have struggled the most. The archaeological records show that many of them, like Santon, just completely shut down. The larger towns, like London Witch, many of them did survive, but only just barely. Anglo-Saxon economic life had gradually reformed around these centers. And so when they went down, this was both a direct and approximate disaster for the craftsmen, traders, guards, pretty much anyone who worked and lived in these places. But it also had a cascading effect for everyone else involved. Think about it like the housing collapse of 2008. You might not have had anything to do with houses in the U.S., but thanks to the way the U.S. economy was structured, and thanks to how large it is, even if you were a non-homeowner living outside of the U.S., there's still a good chance that you felt the impact. Well, in much the same way, when these market towns shattered, a major source of income for the nobility vanished. And that would cause them to look for other means to regain that income. And put a pin in that, because nobles feeling an economic crunch and trying to navigate it is something we're going to come back to repeatedly over the course of this series. But the loss of the market towns would have hit just about everyone. It also meant that it would be difficult for your village to trade any surplus goods, and that would directly make life harder for you. If you couldn't trade that extra grain, there was a good chance it would go to waste. Now, the thing is, you still had rents and obligations to your lord. And we all know what happens when debts pile up. So that's what I mean. This whole thing cascades. 
and the power structures of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were well aware of the widespread nature of this economic catastrophe. If you remember back in the Alfred episodes, he paid particular attention to the status of London. And this was likely a direct response to the impact the Danes were having on the economic strength of Wessex. And this all sounds very dire. But the collapse of the market towns during the Viking raids turned out to just be a temporary decline. Many of these markets not only came back, but once the heavy raiding stopped, they came back with a vengeance, far surpassing the scale of their 9th century predecessors. And here's where our story gets really fun, because the return of these towns owes a great deal to people that you've already heard of, though you would never tie them to the rebirth of the market towns of the 10th century. The revival of the market towns can actually be traced to key decisions made by the old Mercian kings, kings that you'll likely remember, like Athelbald and Offa. But even more surprisingly, these towns also owe their return to the very same people who brought about their near total destruction, the Danes. And I mean that literally, the very same Danes who raided the trading sites down to the actual individuals are ironically partially responsible for their return and growth. And I'll explain that later, but let's begin with those old Mercian kings. Offa and Athelbald are fun, but they've been dead for forever. So I can imagine you're wondering how could they have possibly had anything to do with the regrowth of market towns? Well, as we spoke about last episode, this whole era has been a time of land divestment. The old organization of the land, where it was all held by the king and it was granted out on a temporary basis to those he favored, was coming to an end. And now we're in the era of increased book land, where the land was being privately owned and held in perpetuity. Well, assuming that the landowner doesn't give it away or has it seized or sells it. But overall, those lands are now the landowners. Consequently, the time of multiple estates the time when the king ultimately owned everything was coming to an end. And instead, land was being chopped up and privately held. And with that shift in ownership also came a shift in responsibilities and perspectives. No longer could the king simply marshal all the resources of a region on his own whim because now it wasn't his land. Not really. Now the resources of that shire was probably held by an elderman and several thanes. And that created quite a problem for the construction of public works. So the first monarchs to truly contend with this problem were the kings of Mercia, because they were the most powerful of the Anglo-Saxon kings at the time when this divestment really started to kick off. And it was no minor rare event. More and more of these nobles and clergy were seeking out bookland, and that was creating new challenges that had to be addressed. And so it was King Athelbald of Mercia, who was the first recorded king to begin to try and fix the problem of getting people who were living on private land to continue building public works projects. And the solution he came up with was actually pretty simple. King Athelbald just started applying new rules to land charters. So if you got a grant of land, you were obligated to take part in the defense of the kingdom by building and maintaining bridges and defenses, as well as providing fighters to hold those defenses should they be necessary. And the scale of this responsibility tended to be determined by how many hides of land that a noble held. But overall, the solution kind of worked. Because if you didn't want to agree to the terms, well then, you didn't get the land, and King Athelbald could go about building the bridges anyways. 
But for as good of a first draft solution that it was, there still were some problems with it. Not the least of which being that most of the private land of Mercia wasn't given away by Athelbald in a charter. It had already been granted out, and thus, those lands weren't subject to the new rules. But that's where King Offa comes into it. During his reign, he expanded Athelbald's idea, and he applied it to all landowners in general. Now everyone was responsible for building public works. And this part always gets forgotten. They were also responsible for providing fighters for the defense of the kingdom. And this was likely part of the beginning of the Ferd system, actually. Anyway, time passes, and these ideas of obligation persisted and then eventually spread into Wessex. And they really had to, right? I mean, hindsight, you can see the problems that arise from applying bookland without any attached communal obligation. If everyone takes an I've got mine jack approach, then when a hostile force comes in, it would be able to quickly overwhelm the kingdom because no one would unify and actually provide any defenses. And in some ways, that's kind of what happened when the Danes came roaring in. All of these new landowners were still trying to get their hands around this whole social responsibility thing. And I can understand why. For generations, protecting the kingdom and building major infrastructure was the duty of the king. That was the whole point of having a king. But now it's supposed to be their job? What the hell is with that? It's sort of like when someone from California moves to Colorado. It takes them a little while to realize that when it snows, you need to shovel the sidewalk. And while their confusion about the snow is understandable, it doesn't change the fact that while they're figuring that out, everyone is in danger of breaking their neck walking down the street. And in fact, that's precisely why there are laws in Colorado mandating snow shoveling. It's the same principle. When King Alfred demanded that his eldermen build burrs in their shires, he was doing it for the defense of everybody. But not everybody realized that this was a good thing at first. So then he had to use the law to force those who refused. And in fact, what he was doing there was continuing a Mercian tradition set down by Athelbald and Offa. Furthermore, Alfred's idea of a standing fird probably wouldn't have been possible were it not for the fact that it was already part of an Anglo-Saxon person's responsibility to provide military service in times of need for about a century. And considering that Wessex had been in a near-continual state of being in a time of need, you can see how the idea of a standing fird would come about. And I know what you're thinking right now. This is all very interesting, Jamie, but what the hell does it have to do with the redevelopment of market towns over a century later? Well, the construction of the burrs and the manning of them with a standing ferd were all drawing upon the precedent set down by Athelbald and Offa. And it is those burrs, those forts that were being constructed specifically to fend off the very same people who were raiding the trading centers, that would end up becoming a major engine in redeveloping the trading economy of Wessex. Wessex had been a subdivided kingdom for a very long time. Even before Bookland, there were still divisions of land. These massive multiple estates that we've been talking about were only one form of these divisions. But in a more fundamental level, Wessex was divided into shires. In the early days, these shires were probably organized around royal centers places where the king would come in and collect food rent. And administering the shire would be an elderman. As other kingdoms got absorbed by Wessex, they were also integrated into this shire system. So the practice of dividing lands into shires was old, and it would actually continue into the future. But the point is, 
that the shires were the building blocks of Wessex, and ruling over each shire was an elderman, and each elderman was responsible for building a burr to protect their lands. So by the 10th century, there was a burr at the heart of every shire, and the local population was being organized to build, maintain, and man that burr. That alone would have required an incredible amount of resources to be marshaled. And as those resources were sought and utilized, you'd have trade forming. Furthermore, the burrs quickly began to take on roles beyond their initial defensive duties. These were heavily fortified, relatively safe locations that were typically located at a major power center of the Shire. So before long, they became major political hubs. The West Saxon court quickly recognized that these burrs were actually extensions of their royal authority. And unlike the old tribute centers, these things were fortified so they could move between them with relative safety. So in pretty much no time, these things became social and legal hubs for the shires, and thus the burr became a place to bring your legal disputes. And by the mid-10th century, thanks to all the land privatization, there were so many landholders in these shires that it became necessary to have twice-yearly meetings with the local bishop and eldermen to settle matters and handle changes in the law, deal with levies, and all manner of other legal day-to-day management. And these great twice-yearly meetings were being held at the Burrs. And we'll get more into shires and how they operate in the future, and we'll also talk about the role of the Shire Reeve a title that will eventually become sheriff. But right now, the important thing for you to know is that much of the business of the Shire began to centralize around these well-placed burrs. And this increase in activity and the occasional royal visits and the regular presence of soldiers holding the burrs meant that, much like the old Roman forts, a lot of money was circulating around these things. And consequently, Traders, settlers, and other auxiliary people began to move in, looking to capitalize on this opportunity. And even better, because the burrs were carefully constructed, many of them had ordered streets within them, and those were ideal for markets and settlements. So the burrs grew, and that growth was likely encouraged by the eldermen, because if the markets were established in their personal burrs, then they would be once again able to control the marketplaces and thus enact tolls on that trade, filling their coffers. The economic and political value of the burrs was so significant that it appears that they became their primary purpose. The evidence for this is that those burrs that were placed in merely military strategic locations, rather than population centers, began to be abandoned by the mid-900s. But at the exact same time, the burrs that were in areas that were well-suited for social and economic purposes and that were close to villages and towns, were flourishing. Does that make sense? The isolated burrs that made sense militarily, but not economically, started to break down by the mid-900s. But the rest of them, which were close to economic centers, just took off like a rocket. And all of this growing trade that was occurring had a cascading effect. It revitalized many of the larger trading sites, because demand once again was increasing throughout the kingdom. And at the same time, because of the divestment of lands and because of the need for eldermen and thanes to take a more direct hand in ruling their own plots, the court of Wessex began to be populated with people who were experienced and adept at governing. The kingdom in general became more carefully governed and administered, and that allowed for reforms to be enacted, which spurred on development. 
Furthermore, the king and his court were in a situation where they regularly had command of large numbers of soldiers and resources. Because of the constant threat posed by the Danes, they didn't encounter a lot of resistance when asking for things. And that meant that large-scale projects, such as the creation of Alfred's navy, were able to be quickly carried out. And that, too, stimulated economic development. But the impact that the Danes had on the development of Anglo-Saxon lands wasn't just through inspiring public works projects, which is one hell of a euphemism for looting and pillaging. Actually, it was the looting and pillaging that had a significant impact on the growth of these towns in their own right. Like, directly. And right about now, I expect your heads to explode. I mean, it was all this looting and pillaging that caused these market towns to collapse, or at least falter. So you're probably wondering, how on earth did looting drive development? Well, the funny thing about raiders is that they didn't just attack trading sites. In fact, they were literally famous for striking ecclesiastical centers like Lindisfarne and royal administrative centers like Reading. And they did that because that's where the money was. The truth of the matter is that the way that society was organized, there was a ton of money sloshing around at the upper echelons. And a lot of that money was being held at those locations. These royal treasuries were like dragon hordes. In fact, they were literally hordes. The money was just sitting there, and more of it was coming in every year. The only time that it got spent was when a high-level noble needed to spend it or if it was made into a treasure for the church. Honestly, there's only so much luxury a few people can buy. But when these royal and holy hordes were looted by the Vikings, that money was shared out among the crew, or crews. And those crews started to spend that money. So wealth that was just sitting there suddenly was released into circulation, and that created new demand for goods and services. Think about the effect that would have had. Imagine that you're a blacksmith, and your local village needs you to make about one axe a month. That's about how many axes that they tend to use. How many axes per month are you going to make to maximize your profit? You're going to make one, right? And will that change if the king has a big treasury? No, because you still just have a market for one axe. That's all the people in the village are buying, so how much money the king has really doesn't matter. In fact, my guess is that you won't even change the way you're making axes even if the king gives you half of his treasury because you still will just have a market for one axe a month. In fact, honestly, if the king gave you half his treasury, you'd probably just quit and then there'd be a new blacksmith who would make one axe a month. Making more would just be a waste of time and resources. But let's change things a little bit. What if a Viking or army comes along and takes the king's treasury? Well, now they have a bunch of money, and let's say there's 60 of them, and they've all decided that they want new axes. They also want new shoes for their horses and maybe a few burnies. What are you going to do? You're going to increase production to meet that demand, right? And you're probably also going to get a few apprentices to help. 60 axes is crazy. Now, obviously, trade, especially trade that involves people looting, tends to be a bit more attenuated than a simple, hey, blacksmith, I just took your king's stuff and now I want all of the axes ever. But the basic principle still stands. When you release a bunch of money into circulation and you have an increased demand, you have cascading effects in this manner. And honestly, these trading routes were sizable 
and the increased demand that would have come about from a bunch of people suddenly having wealth and wanting to go and, you know, spend it in these towns would have had a large impact. For the trading and craftsman classes, as well as the people who relied on their income, this would have been one hell of a boon. And of course, the Danes weren't just looting. Remember the Danegelds? Now, Danegelds were a huge source of hardship for those who were tasked to pay them. And many times, those hardships would fall upon those at the bottom of society. But again, this would have actually released a lot of money, in this case, probably a lot of hack silver, into circulation. And this, too, was having a significant effect upon the trade towns. Something else to keep in mind is that the Northmen were traders as well as raiders. They had routes that went all throughout Russia, the Middle East, and beyond. And now that they were beginning to settle in Britain, including holding one of the most well-known Anglo-Saxon cities and trading centers, Jorvik, they were bringing with them their trade connections. And that meant that silk, spices, and all manner of luxury goods were being made available to any nobles with a few coins to spare. And even if the longships weren't directly entering the ports of your local market town, you were likely still part of a trade route, and those goods were flowing in. And with that, you'd be seeing an increase of demand and commerce. So, in the weirdest of ways, the Danes destroyed the Anglo-Saxon trading economy, and then they brought it roaring right back. It's funny how life works. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>